Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1206 for the week of Monday, November 23rd, 2020. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Greetings and felicitations, everybody. And uh, if you're happy, believe Thanksgiving to everyone, and looking forward to getting this uh, show on the road. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Howdy. And welcoming once again all the way from the other side of the globe, it is Kat Robison. Welcome, Kat. Goodbye. <laughs> Which, no one said that to me yet. I'm a little disappointed, but hello, everyone. Well, if you start saying you call that a knife and start going all Crocodile Dundee, then we'll know. <laughs> so uh, let's get into things here, because obviously this is a major, major month for spaceflight for many reasons. But of course, one of the most significant happened November 15th, 2020, when SpaceX launched their Falcon 9 rocket lifting the Crew Dragon Resilience on its way towards the International Space Station with its first operational crew. That crew of four, including Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, Soichi Noguchi, and Shannon Walker. The crew took a little over a day and then arrived at the International Space Station, where they are now beginning their six-month stay. Now, this is the first ever capsule to launch four people, this is also the first operational crew mission of the Crew Dragon, and it is also the first time that we have launched an entire segment of an ISS expedition from U.S. soil, where previously we've only gone up and then done a crew exchange of one or two people. I mean, obviously there's so much history here, and I'm happy to say that I was able to represent Talking Space as one of the few media members allowed in despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, Sawyer, I'll, I'll also mention, too, that this is um, a big first for uh, JAXA as well. They they gave us uh, Suichi Noguchi, who uh, uh, Jim Bridenstein described not only as a treasure for Japan, but also a treasure here for the United States. Uh, this is, uh, he, he's joined essentially an interesting club. He has flown on shuttle, he's flown on Soyuz, and now He's flown on uh, on Crew Dragon, so he's actually flown on on three spacecraft. There, there haven't been many people around to go ahead and and uh, boast that. So, uh, uh, congratulations to uh, one of uh, NASA's uh, great partners, JAXA. Yeah, and I was definitely, of course, watching this launch made me feel fantastic because we were watching a launch that was much more representative of the diversity um, within space and the space program and what we're hoping to achieve. Uh, this crew was very diverse uh, and not to mention that uh, Vic Glover will actually be the first uh, crew member of an um, ISS crew um, who is African-American. So although Obviously, we've had black astronauts visit the space station before. Um, this is the first time that one is joining an expedition crew. So that's a, another big first milestone, which is, is good to see. Though, um, unfortunately, it seems it's taken way too long for that to happen. Um, but certainly watching uh, from a standpoint of, of inspiration and just having crews that better reflect the diversity of, of the population, uh, it was really nice to see that. Yeah, and Victor Glover is not. Yeah, I mean, first off, if you follow him on on Twitter, he's he's a he's a great follow. So please uh, go ahead and do so. But he's um, he's no slouch either. Um, he uh, he holds a, a bachelor's degree in science and general engineering, a master's of science in flight test engineering. 
and a, a master of science and systems engineering and a master of military oper operational art and science. He's, so he's, I'm just looking at his dossier here. He is no slouch. You know, and uh, agreed, Kat, it's, it's taken way too long, but I'm glad it's happened. Same. And just so you know, for history's sake, uh, he is one of only three people now in history who have ever launched aboard three different spacecraft. And uh, also, Shannon Walker is now the first woman to fly on a commercial crew vehicle as well, since all the past test flights have been with men on board. So, lots of history already made there, and I have to say, it was amazing being back there. I had the honor of being at the press site for all of launch day, from about T-minus 8 hours to liftoff, and then till about an hour after launch. And admittedly, it, it feels very different from past launches as, uh, again, the coronavirus pandemic. The last couple of launches we've covered, you may have noticed we were not actually at the press site for any of those because of restrictions by NASA and for safety reasons in the event that if something goes wrong, like there's a lightning warning or a chemical leak of some kind and people need to shelter in place, they can be able to allow everyone's social distancing while sheltering in place to stay that two meters slash six feet apart. Uh, they were kind enough to let me stay there for the entire eight hours, and um, there is a totally different energy when you are at a launch with a satellite versus when you are at a launch with a crew. And I know Gene, Mark, the three of us have all been there for crew launches, and we've also been there for satellite launches. And I wonder what you guys remember of the differences from, say, STS-135 to any of the other satellites that we've covered, maybe even one of the Dragon resupply vehicles or the Orion uncrewed capsule. Yes, Sawyer, there's a definite different vibe. I mean, we've been down there since, oh, you know, Mark, you and I, we've been, been there since STS-129. And uh, I know you and I had the... Uh, privilege of also looking at the uh, Mars Science Lab or the Curiosity rover uh, as uh, that ascended into the sky um, one, uh, one Thanksgiving week, if you will. I'd have to say there's a definite, there's, there's, there's a different vibe. I mean, there's still the, that electricity in the air, but it, it, it's a whole different ballgame when you're, you're launching hum, your fellow humans on one of those things as opposed to a robot or a or a satellite, it, it's it, it. There's just a different feel in the air. I, I can't really place it because you know, when when you look out across the uh, the uh, lagoon there, uh, there you think, oh wow, there's a there's a satellite about ready to go for uh, for Mars, say. But when you know there's there's human beings on that, there there's a whole different light about about it and there's a whole different excitement about it but there's also that little hint of you know nail bite more nail biting if you will than there is say uh, on a um, you know on a on an earth resources satellite or something like that so yeah so this is a definite different vibe i was hoping that one of you would be able to help kind of describe it cuz it's the same way of there's just that different feel in the atmosphere and Kat, we will get you to a crew launch. We will make that happen no matter what citizenship you have because it is such a different experience, but there's definitely something different about it. No, I'm really looking forward to being able to, to see that one day. Uh, you know, I unfortunately, the last time I tried to, Scrubs got me and I just couldn't stay. So <sighs> we know how space is, but I trust that it will happen. So 
we'll get you want to talk about scrubs just listen to our last episode with all the scrubs (laughs) yeah really (laughs) just scrubs scrubs all the time so i do want to also mention another very important passenger on this ride and that was baby yoda yes there has become the new tradition with all the crew dragging capsules that they have a zero g indicator on board something that's relatively common if you've seen any of the soyuz launches to the space station uh the first one was the apatosaurus that was brought up it was one of the kids toys from the two dads and then this time it was in fact uh, baby yoda who was seen floating around the crew dragon resilience capsule yeah so before you guys mail us we do recognize that baby yoda is really called the child but in our hearts he's baby yoda uh so started off there super early and you know when you're there it kind of feels like any other day that we're there it's you go up there's a bunch of press although there was a lot less this was mainly people with networks and the large giant tent set up that they had for the NASA TV slash SpaceX joint broadcast. There wasn't a lot of regular media there because most of them were relegated to just the causeway. Yeah, sorry, I was going to ask about that because I remember SGS 135 and, and the absolute mob scene that was, and I would figure because of COVID that was going to be a little different this time, but there would still be a, a, a good you know press um, presence, no? Uh, I don't know on the causeway side. Again, it was limited. But as for the actual NASA press site, for those of you that know the press site, there were open parking spots in the main parking lot. Wow. And that's with the satellite trucks taking up multiple spaces in the front row right at the bottom of the mound. Wow. Seriously? Seriously, there were open parking spots. I had my choice of spot. Wow. Of where to park. That's... For those of you that have not been there, there is not a lot of parking. And when there's a normal launch, uh, it fills up and there's a secondary lot that's a little farther away that you'll sometimes go to. And for these really big launches, I mean, they'll have people with clipboards telling you where you can and can't park. And this, it was just wherever you can go, grab a spot. Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why I like being, you know, uh, a first man in, last man out, because it's just, you know, you can you can get those those good parking spots. But wow! And if you've seen, uh, you know, any of the videos from, say, like STS one thirty five, the last shuttle launch, and you see all of the people huddled around the countdown clock, and you know, it's this giant mass of people all jumping and cheering. Right. You know how many people there were around the countdown clock for the actual Crew-1 launch when it lifted off? Five. Wow. Seriously? Me, two other NASA employees who were next to me, and then there were there was a Japanese uh, reporter, and then one other person just with their cell phone camera. Five people total. Wow. Welcome to COVID-19. Well, Gene, think back on STS-129. That was the NASA tweet-up. Uh... I would venture to say that the uh, tweet-up participants may well have equaled, maybe outnumbered, I'm not real sure, but they added significantly to the crowd by the clock. You know something, Mark? You're absolutely right. And, and I remember, because I remember Beth Beck, who was one of the, uh, one of our uh, NASA, you know, herders, if you will, it said that uh, when the crew walk, uh, went by in the Astrovan, um, and there was a whole line of us going ahead and applauding over there. She said that was the biggest line that they had since, you know, of, of, of people cheering these guys on. 
um, since since the Apollo days, which was rather sad. But here we were, you know, cheering on the crew of of, of STS one twenty nine. So, yeah, I mean, wow. Okay, so I'm gonna float an idea. See what you think. I think space. I think SpaceX has accomplished something that NASA with the shuttle didn't accomplish for years, and that's a meh. Another launch. Um, I, I I can I can say that, but I think also too it's because of uh, of, of a certain um, individual uh, that's running <laughs> the company, and I think he can be a showman at, at times. Um, I mean the very fact that he's using that that they're, that they're using um, Tesla's the you know the uh, Mr. Musk's other company uh, to to ferry the astronauts to the uh, to the launch pad says something too so you know i mean it, it's it, it there's some merchandising involved in that that too so and here's the other side of the coin mark you were there for sts1 how many people were there lined up along the space coast for that oh shoot i was on the indian river in titusville and uh you know we pulled in an empty spot of grass with vehicles around us around 11 p.m the night before and this was a mid-morning launch for STS-1. And by the time the sun came up, we were surrounded and uh, basically had a good plan And that we dropped the tailgate of the truck, pulled out the little uh, camp stove, and we cooked breakfast while the crowds took an hour or so to, to get away from the area we were at where we drove off relatively unencumbered. So, yeah, you know, of course— with uh, modern media and uh, availability of different ways of seeing launches, you know, give credit for that. There is considerable number of viewers that were watching online. So, you know. I'm sure there were people also watching on network TV in 1981 during SDS-1. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. You bet. Raise his hand. <laughs> Gene, go, go. Yeah. You, you, no, no. You, you were saying that there was, there was definitely people watching on, on network television back in 1981, and I raised my hand. Yeah, that was me. Um, you know, uh, from, from my, my bedroom in Long Valley, um, you know, uh, just, just taking this all in. And, um, you know, the, uh, uh, at least the Saturday, I believe there were two launch attempts. Um, I, kind of played hooky the first time from school and um and and watched and watched the first launch attempt and and which didn't go well and then the the second one was on a weekend and if i remember if if i recall exactly mark i'm, I'm my memory's fuzzy but i think that the, the next launch attempt was was on a sun, saturday or a sunday and and yeah, I was up at, you know, silly o'clock in the morning watching uh, John Chancellor and Tom Brokaw and Joe Kerwin give their uh, give their reports. So. And yes, uh, the first attempt was Friday, April 10th. The actual launch was Sunday, April 12th. So you are correct on the dates. But I mean, that's my thought is if, if you look at the pictures, though, in comparison of Demo 2 uh, versus Crew 1 at, say, the Max Brewer Bridge, which is a very popular viewing site. It was at a complete impasse hours before launch for Demo 2. For Crew 1, you could probably get a car through most of the people that were there. There was not as large of an attendance. So it may not have been as largely attended. I don't know if that's to do with the increase in COVID cases in Florida or, again, the STS-1 to so on syndrome where the numbers slowly go down. But there was still definitely excitement, but it still felt different. 
Yeah, I, I would figure Wood Sawyer because of the pandemic, but uh, um, it, it's it's kind of heartening to hear too that uh, people took the you know the super spreader warnings seriously. Even uh, Kathy Leaders even said during one of the uh, the press conferences, if I'm not mistaken, is we want people to celebrate with us. We want people to go ahead and enjoy this this moment of history, but we don't want to turn it into a super spreader event. So a lot of people really really took heed from that i don't know i think they could have opened the gates and given the guards the day off and it wouldn't have filled up (laughs) wow i'm sorry i I don't i don't think people have the interest that we're attributing the space program to have and i also don't think people have the common sense to not be part of a super spreader i think that's evidenced easily with other events around the country Uh, that is a fair point about the lack of concern of a super spreader event. I will side with you on that. I have to say that research also agrees with Mark. I mean, about what the public cares about. And to be honest, even just watching this, you know, from a different country, it didn't, you know, I mean, it got coverage, but nothing, you know, like even EFT1 got more coverage internationally, I think. And again, that could have been, you know, different factors of things that are going on. But in general, you know, the research tells us that the public isn't as attentive. But part of it, too, is that we sort of want these to be reaching launches, right? We don't want everything to be a big, you know, we want interest in the space program. But the point of of a commercial program is that, you know, it becomes routine. It's, you know, safe in relative terms for um, space travel so that we can move on to sort of the next stage of human space exploration. Um, So... I guess I'm on, on Mark's side. But then again, I also do, like, you know, he mentioned that uh, having space Karen in charge could have something to do with it as well. So, Ken, I was going to ask you that. How was it covered in in, uh, in Australia? Just a news piece. Honestly, Australians were more, were more interested um, in what was going on with the election. And, wow. You know, honestly, Trump dominates coverage, like the things that Trump has said. That That's really, like, we don't get a, a whole lot of American news. Um, but the American we news we get tends to be more, you know, politically focused. So, um, and then of course, you know, my newsfeed is biased because I cover, I mean, I follow people who watch space even within Australia. The, the bigger story was, you know, comments Elon Musk made, you know, they, people talked about that more. Um, and like I said, I mean, I sort of humorously called him space Karen, but there was, you know, an academic, um, Dr. Bell who like in some comments that Elon made um, to sort of, you know, the meme of Karen's with that privilege uh, that he made about vaccine. And that was covered by more people than the actual um, Crew-1 launches. So, you know, I think it's a combination of factors. Obviously, you know, COVID dominates so much stuff. Uh, dominates less here because, you know, we're at such low cases here, but they still talk about the restrictions and they talk about what's going on in the U.S. and, you know, vaccines being covered so i think it just it's sort of a news item that had to fight for coverage i'm going to throw another thought out there and that's that i think that uh you know it's just another space capsule you know we've got several crew launch capsules in use now and several that are coming along but until we get a different type launch vehicle i don't know that the interest and the uh, numbers are going to be there so you think if it was a Dream Chaser launch as opposed to a Crew Dragon launch that it might get more attention? Potentially. I think what you, you the next time you're going to really see a lot of space attention is either 
landing on the moon, which we'll talk about later when that will happen, or space tourism. So when you get like sort of either uh, Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic having actual passengers, paying passengers, that'll be a relatively large news item. But again, you know, research shows that the public, even during the time of Apollo, we had this myth of popular support that everyone, you know, was really behind the space program. And yes, of course, it enjoyed more support um, and more of a national profile at that time. But the popular support for NASA um, among the public has always been quite low. Even during the storied time, we have research um, that, that shows that it's just not at the level that we sort of remember it as. So, of course, you know, we're a biased audience. We're all very interested in this. And, and seeing the, for in terms of funding for the commercial space programs, to see these milestones get hit and see, you know, DM2 takeoff, seeing crew one takeoff, as we see it happen more and the cost come down, that's actually really good for news for the space exploration programs because that frees up resources to focus on other things. So sort of it not being news is good news. So did I mention that we were at the launch? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sawyer, we, we went on a real rabbit trail there. Uh, understatement. So one, I guess to kind of bring it back a little bit, one way that you can really tell the difference, and this seems like a minor thing that I'll bet you very few people actually notice when watching, but the crew drive-by. So obviously the crew walks out of the Neil Armstrong operations checkout facility. They hop into their Teslas, and they've got their play their playlist all set up, and then they start the drive from the uh, checkout facility all the way to pad 39A. Last time, during Demo 2, you may remember seeing that the cars slowed down and there were all the media members along the side waving. Uh, Garrett Reisman was there holding a sign saying, take me with you. This time, they blew right by that thing. Holy cow, I think they were actually speeding over the speed limits. The speed limit there was 25, and that seemed like a lot faster than 25, just, just saying, but... I was along the side of the road there. If you watch back the NASA TV footage from the helicopter view, you will see me literally actually waving as I'm taking pictures and video. But they drove by, and I was next to one of the gentlemen from ABC News and uh, someone else who worked at NASA. And they drove by, and we all looked at each other and went, holy cow, that was fast. And yes, it is a Tesla, and Teslas are very fast vehicles. But when you compare it to last time... They slowed down, they took the time to go, you know, stick their hands out the window and wave. The best we got was Suichi gave a quick little roll down the window and waved. Everyone else had the windows up, and those things were zooming by. Uh, I have a video posted on my Twitter, and if you watch from the time that the first car goes into frame to the time it goes out of frame in front of the VAB, it's about four seconds. Wow, Sawyer, so I just remembered the, the days of the shuttle. You'd have some of the... You know the, the the associate administrators riding with with the uh, with, with the astronauts on board, and they would stop right in front of the vehicle assembly building. That would be the the place where the administrators or whoever else was riding with the astronauts. That would be a a point where where they would get off of the uh, the astrovan, and and it was just that moment to go ahead and and have the crowd kind of burst and wave and do all kinds of things and go crazy and wish the crew well. And uh, I guess those days are, are, are long gone now. Wait till they let the astronauts drive. 
(laughs) (laughs) I do think part of it, again, is the fact that we are in a pandemic. And uh, of those of us that were actually there along the side of the road, there was maybe 10 or 12 of us. So it was another small group of people. Uh, There was one person who, as they were rounding the corner just past the VAB, was waving two flags, an American flag and a Japanese flag. And that was... That was great to see, you know, the Teslas pull up, the sun was setting right behind them, so it was a strong glare, but you see just the light shining off the cars, you see the man waving the two flags, and here come the crew vehicles, you can see the NASA logo on it, and as it goes by, it's just, you know, it it feels spiffier. As nostalgic as the Astrovan was, this feels like 21st century space flight, and it looks like 21st century space flight, and the atmosphere there is, this is the new era. It may not be shuttle, it may not be as glamorous or as roomy, but it has all of the newfangled 21st century amenities. It looks like a 21st century launch and rocket and even ride out to the pad. And that's what what a lot of people were saying on Twitter too that this just the look of the the, the even the look of Pad Thirty Nine A now, uh, it, it had this very very futuristic twenty first century kind of kind of feel to it. So uh, yes, yeah, or your 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 observation is is spot on, and it it kind of agrees with a lot what I was seeing. Yeah, in person, you really. Again, seeing the crew go by in their modern suits in a Tesla, and I was positioned directly in front of the VAB, which they repainted the flag and the logo, so it's vibrant, it's fresh, you've got the new cars driving by, and then as you pan over, there's the slick-looking, you know, uh, launch tower at 39A with the crew access arm with the windows, and you go, okay, th- this is 21st century spaceflight, this is what you picture this is probably if you go back to some of the old sci-fi this is more of what they were picturing the future of space flight would be i just have to say that at least with the uniforms i think we've talked about it before i've had a lot of people comment to me and ask me because obviously you know i have a lot of not non-space people in my life why do the uniforms look like pajamas <laughs> so i guess the same I question totally could be why does the pad cr- closeout crew look like ninjas yeah, yes, I have heard the ninja comment for the closeout crew too. But it's just so funny because it is like to me, uh, it is so modern and sleek, and I and I get the the sort of like modern minimalistic design of the spacesuits. But I really think that those in particular, I'm I'm with the pajama people. Those to me, I'm like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> my mom. I remember she's like she's like, are those those are those practice suits? <laughs> Huh. So, um, but it's just, but some of that too, um, you know, it's just eye of the beholder. You know, we're, we're very used to thinking, you know, we're used to SpaceX's design aesthetic, you know, within, you know, seeing it because it's, it's Elon's design aesthetic, right? It's, it's there in, in Tesla, it's there in SpaceX, it's sort of, it's his thing. But if you're not in that community and you're not, you know, aware of it, um, it's interesting to see how it's perceived on a, uh, in the non-space crowd. I guess the typical view still is the orange pumpkin suits or the big bulky white suits from the moon uh, yeah. during the Apollo program. Well, and then there were some really cool suits that have been released. Um, have you seen the, is it the Dream Chaser? I can't remember. I saw them at IAC in 2019 in DC. And I can't remember if it's, seen, no, or if it's Virgin Galactic. Someone... 
Um, I'll have to go back and look. I've got some pictures because I've got a very sleek flight suit pressure suit that is just like. I think that's Virgin looks, Galactic because theirs yeah, do look so. sleek. Yeah, they're very sleek. And I'm thinking like that is modern space travel. Hello. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah, you're kind of looking at, too, if Steve Jobs were still with us and he was to design a spacecraft, that's probably the the aesthetic you'd be looking at, seriously. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, um, and I I know that there's mock-ups and I just can't, you know, Sawyer, you and Gene as well, Mark, have better memories for these things from me, Um, but the CST-100 suits, have we seen the Boeing suits? I'm sure we have. The bright blue, the very bright blue (laughs) They were released uh, a while back ago, and and I think before SpaceX's actually. Yes, they were, and uh, um, I remember Chris Ferguson was the one who was actually uh, modeling the uh, the uh, Starliner suit. Yes, like I have a vague memory of it, but as you may or may not, I have no visual memory, so I can't pull up pictures in my mind. Oh yeah, that's a more traditional look. I'm just pulling it up yeah. now to look. Oh yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, and and from you know, I, I I'm not going to demigrate Boeing, but it's something that that you would you would uh, expect from somebody that takes a much more you know traditional approach to to things. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So lots of flaps on the I, arms. I, I would just like to point out that I spent four years getting a degree in broadcast journalism. I've worked my way up through producer jobs, working in TV news, drove all the way up to Cape Canaveral, spent eight hours there for this launch, and we're talking about fashion. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. Well, we did start with a talk of the aesthetics. So, you know, fashion is part of aesthetics. Fair enough. Uh, You You media always trying to control the the discussion. Touche, sir. Touche. Uh, so anyway, I have to say, going back to the launch after that, the atmosphere completely changed after that. Because obviously, you've got this gorgeous sunset on the rocket and the capsule. And now it's not just a rocket on the launch pad. It is a rocket with four people on board. It has a whole new feel to it. As you're sitting there looking at it, as the sun's setting and, you know, it's nightfall, clouds have basically all cleared out. And you're looking at a rocket. Normally it's, all right, rocket sitting there. It's ready to go. There's a satellite up there somewhere in the payload fairing, whatever. Even with the uncrewed test flights, it's like, all right, capsule's there. It's ready. It's got a dummy or some tests on board. This, these are not dummies on board. These are brilliant, intelligent, living people. And you're sitting there looking at it going, that's not just a rocket anymore. That is now holding four people's lives on top of it. And it really changes the way that you look at it especially again having been to a couple dozen launch attempts and almost 20 launches that have actually successfully gone off now it's a whole new feeling when you're looking at the rocket going okay that's a lifeboat now that's exactly what i guess i was i was trying to allude to before um when you know there are you know, uh, you know, seven or four fellow human beings up there on that thing, and that thing's going to go ahead and light up and send, you know, four human beings to to orbit. You know, this is a whole different ballgame. This, this, the people's lives are at stake, 
and if you have a bad day with a with a machine, okay, fine. You sit back and and figure out what went wrong. And if you lose that machine, oh well, it could be replaced. These people can't be replaced, and and that's why you know the the just the the whole aesthetic of the day changes when you look out there, and you see that thing light up and and start to ascend in, into the sky. It's a whole different ballgame. Here's the difference for me with that, though. Again, I was at 135. That was the last crew launch that I was at, was the final shuttle launch. At that point, it was the excitement through all of it. I think I've kind of been desensitized over the last nine years of, all right, it's a rocket. But even for the hours, the two, three hours before launch, where the crew is just sitting up there, running through checklists, getting their spacecraft set up, turned on, waiting for the fast load to begin on the fueling, and... The people are already on there. I, I think it's a different aesthetic then of not just the, as it lifts off, you hold your breath that much more. It's, you're not looking at a rocket, you're looking at people on a rocket for two, three hours before launch still. And it just puts it all into a crazy new perspective as you're hustling around the press site, moving around, taking pictures, thinking about it. It's, you're taking pictures of people. You're taking the portraits of four people, even if you can't see their faces every time you snap a picture of that rocket. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, the the faces and the names are, are just in, you know sort of embedded into your into your mind as you're as you're looking out there, and you're not seeing the launch vehicle. You're seeing them. And, exactly. You know, and and that's and that's what makes the dynamic extraordinarily different. That's the wording I was trying to find. That that summarized it perfectly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So then, of course, there is the excitement as launch gets closer. And originally, the weather was literally 50-50, 50% go. And there was not a single cloud in the sky for most of the day. There was not a single cloud in the sky at launch. But suddenly, right before liftoff, the humidity changed. As difficult as it made it to get pictures, it did make for one amazing factor. And that was the sound. The, the air was so heavy that the sound just carried and kept carrying. And then because of where I was, I was directly next to the countdown clock between the countdown clock and the flag, of which, like the old days where they used to have the flag for Endeavor, Atlantis, Discovery, whichever shuttle was launching, there was a Crew-1 flag, a flag with the crew emblem on it, underneath the American flag, which was really cool to see. I was directly between those, which meant the sound would go directly behind me, bounce off the VAB, and come back and hit you again from behind. So you're getting bombarded with sound from in front, and then the reverb from behind as it bounces back off the VAB right to you. It was one of the loudest launches. I know I keep saying that with the Fal almost every Falcon 9 launch, especially the Block 5, but this is a whole another level when you factor in just how dense that air was and the echo from it was unreal keep in mind this is the same volume that i have all of my other recorders at when i record falcon 9 this one even had a cover on top of the mic for wind and this is what it sounded like turn up those speakers and enjoy
Sir, that had to be one of the best <laughs> best launch captures that we we've ever we've ever gotten. I mean, I I I I'm almost I almost remember. Yeah, Mark, you'll probably remember this: the the launch audio that we got from that Atlas V um, for the MSL launch. We were sitting on top of the uh, the launch control building, and for some reason or other, we got some sort of strange reverb at the end of that, which made it almost sound like that that Atlas V was shrieking upward. But um, this was just wow. Th that's all I've got to say, Sawyer. I, I, when you sent this over to me that that uh, that evening, my jaw dropped, and I'm, I was wearing the same headphones I'm, I'm wearing now, and I was like, "Holy, you know, fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill it in with." Um, it, that was an amazing capture, sir. Congratulations, and thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. And again, like I mentioned, there was only five of us that were actually along the waterfront there by the countdown clock. Everyone else was along the causeway. So that's sound you won't hear anywhere else. The only other ones that were there were professional camera crews. So a lot of them, you know, you hear some of the sound, but they're not specifically there trying to record the launch audio. And that was, again, the feeling on that one was amazing. You could feel the weight in the air of it, and it was just unbelievable so add in the joy of breaking a scrub streak the joy of that amazing launch sound and vibration and echo and then most importantly of all like we just were talking about that's four people on their way to a six-month stay aboard the international space station marking the official beginning of commercial crew flights operationally from u.s soil the beginning of the next generation of space flight we had the shuttle era, right now we have the commercial crew era. That is, that lighting up of the sky lit up the program, and what a way to light it up. I think that's all I can say for that. That's all I could say for it too, Sawyer, wow. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we will uh, We will wish uh, Mike, Victor, Soichi, and Shannon a fantastic six-month stay aboard the ISS and we'll, of course, let you know once they get ready to land in either the Atlantic Ocean or the Gulf of Mexico, weather pending six months from now. Yeah, sorry, before we leave, the one thing I do want to mention is we're up to like four people in the U.S. segment right now. Uh, we haven't had seven, and that means we've got seven people on, on the station completely. And having that, that, that seventh person you could go ahead and dramatically increase the science output on board the International Space Station. And that was one of the things that a lot of people within NASA are really, really excited about. And uh, that means there's more science output from, from that, that facility. It's a more chance to, to do some great science going forward. And this will be the, the, the norm going forward where we'll have seven individuals on board the station at any given time. Um, I believe Crew 1 is due to come down. They're thinking around maybe February, March, because I believe Crew 2 is due in March at some point, correct? I believe Crew 2 is scheduled for April right now, and this okay. crew will come back in either March or April, uh, I believe is the plan, and obviously we'll keep you updated as we know more. And just to your point there, Gene, I remember it was five years ago, and I found the episode episode 708 season 7 episode 8 we talked to uh outgoing iss program manager mike Safradini, and one of the main things that he and i talked about at the iss conference in boston 
was once crew flights start going up from the U.S. soil, getting the crew on board the ISS-7 and just how much of a science impact that would have. And that was five years ago. And now it's finally happening. Yeah, and I think Kirk Sherman, uh, when we talked to him, when you had, had the honor of talking to him, who's uh, just recently retired from the program, um, he was also the ISS program director um, after Mike Safferdini left. He, too, had mentioned something about uh, having seven individuals and being awfully excited about that. And, you know, now it's uh, Joel Montalbano having his hands full, going ahead and having these seven ast- astronauts on board and trying to go ahead and find new ways to keep them busy. And believe me, they are finding a ton of ways of keeping these folks busy. And also, just one last point for everyone out there. If you haven't seen some of the videos of just the absolute joy that Vic Glover has when he gets to space and he gets a, his gold pin, uh, and then when he goes on board the ISS. Like if you need a pick me up because we're in a pandemic, uh, just go watch those videos because he is just so joyful and it will just bring a huge smile and, you know, help you celebrate the Thanksgiving spirit of gratitude because he was certainly joyful and grateful to be there. Thanks for saying that cap. Cause I thought too, it was a, it was a great, um, uh, classy move for, uh, uh, for Hopkins to go ahead and give, uh, Victor Glover, the gold astronaut pin while on orbit. I thought that was just a neat, classy touch. So uh, so bravo to uh, both uh, Mike Hopkins and to uh, Victor Glover, the new, the, the new veteran. He's got his pin, and it is fantastic. So congratulations to them and the entire crew, and we wish them all the best on their entire mission. All right, uh, so obviously that is the... Uh, the main thing that's going on, but that's certainly not the only thing. It has been a busy time in spaceflight. And uh, I should point out that SpaceX is no longer the only game in town that is launching orbital missions and returning their first stage. Albeit, it's not like Crew-1, where it lands on a barge in the ocean. It's not like the successful Sentinel-6 launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, which landed back or at the launch site. But it kind of parachuted down into the ocean as a precursor for being captured out of midair on a parachute by a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, you're obviously talking about the return to sender mission that Rocket Lab yes. just went ahead and, and completed successfully. The interesting thing about that, Sawyer, um, if, 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 you've, if anybody saw the launch coverage for that, interesting story around how that whole started. Um, Peter Beck played with the idea and he didn't think it was it was possible to try to recover the first stage on electron he, he he really didn't a group of individuals went to work in rocket lab and basically said hey boss i think we figured out a way to make this work and they ran the numbers and sure enough they said you know okay let's try it you know worse comes to very worse we, we're, we're just back to square one and 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 no harm no foul and lo and behold, the the gosh darn it, they've they've come up with a way to make electron reusable, um, which will help. Uh, uh, obviously, it's going to help Rocket Lab's bottom line. So this way, they don't have to go ahead and make that many stage one cores. All they have to do is, and you know, basically do the inspections and make sure that uh, uh, the the core stage is is uh, reusable again, um, you know, structurally and so on. But 
Um, if you were able to go ahead and take a look at the Twitter stream and um, that uh, Peter Beck and both Rocket Lab posted right after the launch, because they had a, a a vehicle, you know, a, a boat speed out to the recovery area. Gosh darn it, that thing was in, was intact when when they got there. So you know, hats off to them. Um, that thing carried a, a few uh, experiments and a uh, <clears throat> a little bit of a mass simulator, which Sawyer we probably want to talk about a little bit. Um, there was a, uh, a couple of cargo, um, the cargo this vehicle carried, it carried 30, I believe it was like 30 satellites all in all, but the, the main one was, um, main ones were from a company called Tricept. Um, it was, uh, um, uh, a, a, basically a tether experiment. Um, there was another, uh, uh, experiment here from Unseen Labs, uh, and uh, Swarm had a uh, had uh, some of their uh, their space bees on on board, and the uh, to to go ahead and and throw this uh, was the last one out there, um, APSS one, which was a product from a bunch of uh, school students out at the University of Auckland in your territory, Cat, um, and this uh, particular package uh, was to go ahead and. Uh, monitor electrical, excuse me, electrical activity in the Earth's upper atmosphere. Test whether you know um, any kind of disturbances can predict earthquakes, of all things. And uh, uh, so, again, hats off to the folks over at the University of Auckland and all the students that uh, had a hand in in making that uh, that payload work. And then, of course, we had the a mass simulator on board. A little... Wait, I have to ask first. Sure. Is mass simulator the proper nomenclature? Oh, I, if where's that brick? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of. Um, the, uh, it is, it is from a, a salute to the, um, uh, game, uh, Half-Life. Um, Noam Chomsky. Uh, and it was uh, basically uh, just an additive, ju- just an added three um, uh, D printed little gnome that uh, they just decided to go ahead and, and try. That basically, um, to read from the uh, the press kit, the mission serves as a homage to the innovation and creativities of gamers worldwide. It also aims to test and qualify novel three D printing techniques that could be employed for future spacecraft components. Um, also too, I believe there was a, a gentleman, uh, that is kind of stuck in the U S citizen that was kind of stuck in New Zealand, but he's got some deep pockets and he decided that he would, um, contribute, I believe a dollar for everybody that, uh, um, watched this particular launch and, um, so I believe uh, the the contributions would go to a, a, a children's hospital, uh, an ICU unit. So uh, t- tip of the hat to uh, to that individual as well. I just like the little uh, achievement style notifications that kept popping up in the bottom right corner of the screen, like at liftoff and as it achieves space and all, especially the puns, because if anyone appreciates good wordplay, you probably noticed already from this story that it's me. Yeah, exactly. Hats off to them and Noam Chomsky and 
Uh, we're excited for the next recovery attempt, which hopefully will involve them catching it midair as opposed to fishing it out of the water. And uh, just for everyone out there, we do know that Auckland is New Zealand, not Australia, but it's close to cat. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of recovery, uh, SpaceX setting another record uh, with the seventh successful launch and landing of the same booster, uh, which occurred this past week on November 24th, as it brought up more Starlink satellites, which is now in beta, by the way, the actual Starlink internet network. That was also the 100th Falcon 9 launch. And if you'd have told me, as we started covering Falcon, the first one we were at was 2012, that in eight years they would have launched 100 of those Falcon 9s, and landed one booster, let alone the same one seven times, I would have told you you're crazy. Yeah, they've come a long way. In fact, the uh, one that uh, launched the uh, the Crew-1 uh, crew is going to be refurbished and uh, reused for uh, for Crew-2. They've had so much reuse with them. Uh, it even came back a little crooked, admittedly, the Crew-1 booster, but it's a successful landing, and it's refurbishable. And obviously, it's bringing down the cost of spaceflight dramatically. But all these years ago, I thought it was—I'm sure we all agree, if you listen back to the old episodes, we thought it was a crazy idea to be able to return a booster. And not just, like, on a parachute, but actually land it on land, or even crazier, floating on a barge in the middle of the ocean. Bring it back, refurbish it, and launch it again within a couple of months, and keep doing that up to ten times. Well— we're now at seven, and foot is officially in mouth. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm still waiting to see, and and, and I have not seen, and, and this is just me talking. Um, I I'd, I'd really like to see how much money this actually saves SpaceX, and in turn saves the client. Um, I have not seen the numbers on that, and I don't think if if anybody else has has seen the numbers on that, I'd appreciate them throwing them my way because i'd really like to like to see how much money is being saved by um both uh their clients and by uh, by the company this is one of those points um that that we've talked about before on the show is that the one problem um that we see in terms of sort of knowing cost is that spacex is a private company but it's a private company that was built with a very large investment of government money which means that it's a company that although again is a private company, um, privately held, that has been paid for, a lot of the development of these rockets has been paid for by the American taxpayer. Um, and there is a lack of transparency on cost. Um, of course, we can know how much they charge for each launch to NASA. Um, and we hear that also sometimes for private customers. But you know, this is, this is one area of weakness, I think, and it's one lack of oversight. Um, that we have within these commercial crew programs um, and other commercial development programs when we don't have a full accounting of the cost, especially considering the huge amount of public investment that has gone into SpaceX and specifically into SpaceX rocket technologies. Um, so, you know, again, when we watch these commercial launches and we're seeing private companies do this, this is still, you know, still something that the American people have invested their treasure into. So that, that's my one comment on that is that I'm, I'm there with you. I wish that there was more transparency in SpaceX finances, at least in regards to this, um, because it's something that has been paid for um, largely in part by the American people. 
Yeah, thanks, Kat. I mean, th that, that's exactly what I was trying to get at. Not only were, not only have, you know, the U.S. taxpayer invested in, into that technology, but two, I'd really like to find out. Oh, we're saving money. We're saving money. That's always been been the the catch-all, and I don't know how much money they've actually saved. You know, I mean, I mean there's no argument that this that this launch is cheaper. You know, per launch than buying seats on Soyuz. Like, there's no argument for that. Oh, yeah, but, I'm not. I'm yeah. with you. Yeah, I know. But there's actually no way to know, like, the true cost because of how much money we've put into as the, again, as the taxpayer, as the, you know, the government, how much money that we have put into these programs is quite large. So, you know, we, we can get a cost per launch, but that cost per launch doesn't actually um, capture, you know, the investment cost of the development of the rocket. I mean, we can obviously look and say this is how much, you know, that 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 SpaceX has received on NASA contracts. And so we could we can sort of game out a number. But what you're asking is like how, you know, the same question. It's like, you know, how much does this cost? How reasonable is it? Or, you know, the other question we've talked about on the show before is how profitable is SpaceX now? Or has it reached profit? Yeah, thank you. I mean that's that's another thing too, because I'm I'm still remembering um it, this is a quote from, uh, and I'm going to go all the way back to Apollo 4. Uh, Werner von Braun was asked about reusability on the Saturn. And he basically said, well, if we had a contract to study reusability, we'd know how to do it. But you'd, you'd have to amateurize, you know, what, you know, how many times you're going to launch as opposed to, you know, I guess I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but he was basically saying that, you know, in order to go ahead and and and, and basically make this profitable, you, we'd have to like build like a zillion Saturns um, since we only think we're going to build 15. We, we wouldn't we're not going to study reusability on it. You know, so in, in other words, to make it profitable, you'd have to build like, you know, like a thousand of them and I, i'm just okay you know but but that's really what i'm trying to drive at what i i keep on hearing about all of this stuff about oh we're, we're saving money reusability is the key to to the future is it really and and i just i'm just being devil's advocate a little bit that's all and i think that this is a question that'll be answered as we have you know, ULA's um, rocket is next rocket Vulcan is developing with reusable aspects, and they're not they're not looking to um, to recapture boosters. They don't see that it's profitable to them. Their reusability is based on engines and recapturing engines. Um, so, you know, as we see different companies have different models of reusability, when it's not just you know sort of SpaceX dominating this, I think that we might see some more transparency. And in general, other companies, even private companies, have been more transparent with their cost models than SpaceX has been. So I think that this is a question, um, you know, that hopefully will be answered as we have other other um, rockets developed that are using. Um, reusable elements whether it's booster recovery engine recovery or other other recovery that are uh, perhaps more transparent with their their financial aspects now again this doesn't mean that it's going to make spacex more transparent uh, my thought is that spacex will remain as as opaque as possible in terms of their finances for as long as possible um, but 
just just a, a thought to know that we'll have more data on what is the true cost of reusability as we have more companies enter into that in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm just going by a, a discussion I had with Mike Leinbach a few years ago. He basically said reusability ain't that easy. And he, he, was, he was just really, really... I don't know. He he was kind of on the fence um, with what's what was going on right now, um, but Cat, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm in total agreement with you. It's going to be interesting if we ever do actually get those numbers. And uh, speaking of lack of transparency, China. <laughs> How's that for a transition? Oh there? boy, oh, Sawyer, you win. Miss the dad jokes. <laughs> uh, however, this one was a uh, public display as on. Tuesday, November 24th, Eastern Time, the Chang'e 5 mission successfully launched on its way from China to the moon. And if all goes according to plan, this will be the first lunar sample recovery mission since 1976. So there's a lot of excitement around this, and I'm sure still a lot of questions, too, about Chang'e 5. Well, uh, it, it is a first for China. You know, this is a sample return mission from the lunar surface. The last one to do that was, I believe, the Soviet, then then Soviet Union with um, one of, I want to say, one of the Lunacod vehicles. Correct. It was Luna 24. Yeah. Thank you. And um, all right. Luna 24, then it wasn't one of their rovers. Of course, we haven't had a sample return mission ourselves since Apollo 17, um, but it, it will be interesting to see how they pull this off and to see if they um, can do it rather um, rather well. Um, I'm sure hoping, like just as Jim Bridenstine wrote in on, on Twitter, that they will uh, go ahead and share their results with the rest of the world. And uh, um, hopefully we, they will you know be able to add something to... Uh, the pages of lunar science, the same way that, uh, you know, LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is still doing some good work up there. Um, and I'm sure that it, too, may be leveraged to find the, uh, the, uh, the vehicle once it lands. And I'm sure we're going to have wonderful images from this because one thing, you know, as secretive as China can be once they have an asset in space, you know, the launch camera angles on this were fantastic. Um, last time that they landed on uh, on the moon, we had cameras. It was definitely something um, that they view as part of their national prestige. So I expect that we're going to get some pretty cool images from this, and I'm excited for that. Uh, if I remember reading correctly, it once it lands, I believe it's only about a month turnaround to actually getting a sample theoretically back on Earth. Yes, it's a really quick, quick turnaround, which will be really exciting. So it'll be exciting to get new samples. It might be interesting, especially with all the recent findings about uh, water embedded in the regolith on the surface and uh, all of the things that we've learned since the Apollo program to compare these newer samples, see if there's any major changes, see what we did know back then, what we're learning now. And if we can compare and contrast a bit. So there's a lot of excitement on this. And uh, we will absolutely be looking forward to that sample return. Because after this episode was recorded on December 1st, the mission successfully landed on the moon. And uh, as we say farewell to Chang'e 5 on its way to the moon, unfortunately we do also have to say farewell to an iconic radio telescope from here on Earth. Even if you don't know the name of it, the Arecibo 
uh, telescope. You've probably seen it in pop culture, in so many famous movies, even in James Bond films. And, uh, well, it, it had a little rough time with a recent hurricane, and it seems like it did a lot more damage than anyone thought. Yes, Sawyer, back on uh, August 10th, um, a platform support cable uh, broke, and it caused damage to the... Uh, to the dish itself there's about a 100 foot gash in the reflector dish at that point now no one was hurt by that but the facility had just reopened after um tropical storm icaeus and and i'm probably botching that name but but Isaias. Isaias, whatever. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. But it's not clear whether whether or not that cable failure back on August 10th was a result of the tropical storm or was just something else. Um, So NSF had ordered a replacement, um, but on November 7, um, before another cable could be put in there, uh, the second cable cable broke, um, and it shattered part of the reflector dish inside uh, significantly. This was uh, one of the main support cables. Now, if anybody knows anything about suspension bridges, that's kind of how this particular facility is built. It's built literally like a suspension bridge, and... Um, the uh, the engineering staff had been trying to to take a look look at these cables, as well as um, you know the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. Um, they were trying to evaluate what can be done at, at the end of that, and uh, looking at all of the evaluations plus from a from a another uh, engineering firm, NSF made the decision to. Uh, uh, basically decommission the telescope because of the damage uh, that was 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 sustained on this particular area here. Um, the bad news on this, according to a press release that was just dated from yesterday, um, and this is from uh, the National Science Foundation, and I'm going to quote it directly, during ongoing aerial drone surveillance of the Arecibo Observatory's 305-meter telescope, Engineers observed additional breakages on the exterior wires of the main cables attached to uh, one of the towers, Tower 4. There are three of them over there. This is the same tower, by the way, which the failed auxiliary cable and the broken main cable were attached to. So, again, what the real fear is right now is that with both of those cables gone additional stress is going to be placed on the rest of the facility. The facility is in real, real danger of collapsing right now. And they want to go ahead and talk to the Army Corps of Engineers about trying to stabilize the area long enough to get some important equipment out and then bring this thing down in a controlled fashion rather than just letting fate take its course and have the whole thing basically collapse rather loudly and tragically because there are buildings around the area too that they want to go ahead and salvage and hang on to for for other purposes so um 
this essentially is a tragedy unfolding right before our eyes here. And a quick post-editorial note to add, unfortunately, after this episode was recorded, the walkway did collapse entirely on top of the radio dish, essentially destroying the telescope entirely. And that is according to video released by the National Science Foundation. This just, this entire thing just makes me so angry because it's just the perfect example of what happens when we have science assets that are true assets that have, you know, made incredible discoveries that could potentially have had much longer lifetimes, but fall victim to budgets. You know, when, when we don't, um, you know, it's, you know, it's not like this is a, a new budget issues for Arecibo or a new thing, you know, that it hasn't received full funding from the National Science Foundation since um, 2008, I believe, and feel free, please, to check, fact check me on that. I might have the wrong year. But, you know, and so it's been a long time that, that the scientists who rely on this telescope have been trying to find other ways um, in order to to make sure that it has enough funding not only to operate but to ensure its safe operation especially because it's in an area where it is vulnerable to natural catastrophes and disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes uh, tropical storms etc and also its management was transferred to um, to other entities which might not have been as um, experienced or able to manage it in, in ways that it was managed previously under full funding. Um, and it's just this thing that just, you know, this happens, it's not just Arecibo, right? This is happening to um, research facilities across the United States, across the world, as we, you know, focus funding priorities in other areas and in sort of in short-sighted ways because the, the science that is done at these places, even if people don't see an immediate impact on their lives, the science does impact our lives and it impacts the way that we understand the world in which we live. And um, yeah, it just makes me upset. I just think it's endemic. And seeing this news, especially, you know, just on the heels of reading a story about how all the billionaires got so much richer during this pandemic while so many other things are struggling. I was just mad. I know that I sent out an angry tweet like, hey, billionaires, maybe pay, pay your fair share so we can fund science, right? Um, but to me, this is just it's just endemic of sort of this. And it's not just in the U.S. It's across the world where we don't put enough money into science and we don't put enough money into those kinds of initiatives. Yeah, Kent, I'm right there with you, especially, I mean, I mean, th this facility, they've been trying to shut down really since about 2006. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's changed hands. You're right. Cornell was initially uh, in charge back in like the 70s and the 80s. I believe they, they were, they, they were um, torn away too. Um, I believe uh, uh, they were no longer part of the management structure and uh, other other teams had taken over, and you're absolutely correct. Maybe the Cornell team knew how to go ahead and 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 service this thing going forward, and had much more experience with it. They had been they've been there since the, since the start. Um, but it seems to me too that the NSF was, and I I don't I'm looking at the history, and the National Science Foundation has been trying to wind this project down for some time. In fact. Um, back around 2008, as you had mentioned, um, there was a, a move to shut it down and Congress stepped in and kind of, you know, cleared the way to, for, for additional funding. But it, 
I mean, this was a national treasure, for God's sake. When we're, we're letting the, we let this thing deteriorate, and now we're going to go ahead and watch this thing fall apart and disintegrate before our eyes. Yeah. And well, and one thing is to consider its location. The the job creation and the importance of it is in a, in a constituency in Puerto in Puerto Rico that lacks uh, representation in the Senate. Um, a lot of projects like this uh, are able to maintain their funding in Congress and are able to maintain that is because they have advocates in Congress. Like uh, I know I mentioned to everyone, I just recently um, turned in my dissertation, which I'll be defending soon. And one of the things that I talk about is that Congress is a main driver of these, some of these priorities. And when people in Congress have constituencies whose livelihoods depend on projects like this, not just for, you know, the big idea science things, but local jobs, local economy, local infrastructure, you know, these projects tend to have better protection. You know, in the U.S., you know, Puerto Rico is a territory. It's not a state. It doesn't have representation in the Senate. Um, it does have representation at other levels. Um, but, you know, the constituency doesn't drive um, as much of those priorities, which can be a, a, a real um, difficulty for um for maintaining projects in areas like this. And also, I mean, there's there's a lot of other other things that go into it, um, but that is just one thing to consider that when Congress, um, when, they're, when they lack a, a represented constituency, it can make projects like this more difficult to save despite not only their historical significance, but their significance to local economy and to science as a whole. Exactly. I mean, this is not only just a cultural center for the people of Puerto Rico. It does generate jobs locally there, but it also it's it's on the the, the National Historic Site re Register. Um, but but Kat, I'm right there with you. And we've said this a lot of times and I'm stealing this from this quote from Jeff Faust. Uh, on a blog he used to write, sometimes the most important orbit is the one around the beltway. And, and you, you've, just, you've just hit right there. And unfortunately, there was not an advocate for this facility. And we're watching it literally, we're watching this dream fall apart. And by the way, there is nothing else on the planet like this save one place, and that's China. And... You know, now they will have the lion's share on this. And I'm wondering, too, what the impact is going to be on the uh, uh, the near-Earth asteroid uh, searches and, and, and so on. Um, I know there was an NASA press release at the time when this whole thing happened um, that Goldstone would be able to go ahead and take over. But Goldstone does other things other than, than this, too. And I, I don't know. We're losing something that's going to really, really help us in the new earth asteroid search and it's just it's just a shame it's heartbreaking i mean that's it's one thing when a lifespan runs out like something with hubble where i mean we've repaired it five times already uh when it runs out it will be looked upon as one of the greatest scientific instruments ever that ran its course it's a shame when something like this could have kept going and things like budgets just led to its ultimate demise early it's it's painful to watch it's great again to see what science we have gotten from it but it it still hurts i think on that note though uh that will bring this wild episode to its conclusion this is uh this has been all over the place tonight but i appreciate everyone for joining us thank you for joining us gene mcculka uh thanks so very much and looking forward to next time same thank you as well for joining us cat robinson always a pleasure and thank you for joining us, Mark Raderman. 
And if I didn't wear out my welcome, hopefully I'll come back next time. <laughs> you would love to have you back. Mark. Your welcome, sir, is never worn out. I, I mean, we've welcomed you for 250 plus episodes. I think we can welcome you back for at least one more. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, we hope that you will all join us again. And we would like to mention that uh, we try and find as many ways as possible for you to be able to listen to us. We are on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and we are now available as well on Pandora. So you can ask for us using your favorite at-home smart listening device or just by pulling it up on your phone with any of the apps that we've just mentioned. So you've got more ways to listen to us, whether you like it or not. But uh, we hope you'll keep joining us. Till the next time, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and go Resilience! Go Resilience!